God is speaking to us uh, today. These are the very breathed out words of God. And the question is, are we ready to hear them? Are we prepared? Are, are we postured in such a way that we are open to hearing what God has to say to us today? Uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have uh, a copy of God's Word in print or digital form, I'd invite you to join me there. Before we look to God's Word and hear from God's Word, I want to quote another great theologian, that being Charlie Brown. Uh, some of you uh, are familiar with the Peanuts cartoons. Uh, in one of these, uh, Charlie Brown is talking with Lucy, and he is asking her advice about life. And Lucy explains that life is like a deck chair, Charlie. Uh, some people place their deck chair on the back of the boat so they can see where they've been. Uh, other people place their deck chair on the front of the boat so they can see where they're going. Which direction is your deck chair pointing, Charlie Brown? And without hesitation, Charlie replies glumly, I can't even get my deck chair open. Right? <laughs> I, I haven't even gotten that far yet, right? Uh, Charlie Brown expresses the, um, the reality of, of life, right? That uh, sometimes the things we want to do, the grand plans we have, we're, we're, not even, we're just trying to survive, right? We're just trying to get the deck chair open. Um, Keith Miller uh, recognized this dynamic in the church. He says, our churches are filled with people who outwardly look contented and at peace, but inwardly are crying out for someone to love them, just as they are confused, frustrated, often frightened, guilty, and often unable to communicate even with their own families. But the other people in the church look so happy and contented that one seldom has the courage to admit his own deep needs before such a self-sufficient group as the average church meeting appears to be. I think just good for us to be honest that there's a lot of Charlie Browns here this morning, okay? Uh, if we really put our chips on the table, if we take off our, our mask a little bit, we recognize there's a lot of areas in which we're struggling, right? We're continuing our study here in Route 66, Road Trip Through the Bible, considering the 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year. And here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we find a church that I think we can relate to. Uh, a real church with real people and real problems trying to work out their salvation in real time. So there's something here in, in Corinthians that I think is going to resonate with us in our day-to-day -day struggles uh, in trying to live out the Christian life. Uh, scripture records a number of letters uh, from the Apostle Paul. So we've been looking at the little blue section on the bottom shelf. Uh, the church has been established. That's Acts, the gray volume there that stands alone. And then Paul wrote a series of letters to the newly formed church, helping them to properly understand the gospel and to properly understand how the gospel relates to their lives. Right? Helping them grow in their faith. And we've noted that behind each of these letters, there is a backstory. And so we want to consider that here, the backstory behind the letter, the first letter, to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul, 
called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their God, their Lord, and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we know about Corinth? Corinth was a prominent and affluent city in the first century, a major port city of nearly half a million people, a bustling center of trade and commerce, and part of uh, its uh, prosperity and influence was tied to its geographic location. Uh, it was uh, a really strategic place in, uh, in, in Greece. So you have uh, Jerusalem off to the right, you have Rome and Italy off to the left, and there in the center is Greece and Corinth, uh, kind of identified there in the southern portion of Greece. Uh, if we were to kind of uh, zoom in a little bit on Corinth, we would see that there's, uh, again, this unique geographic feature. Uh, there is a, um, a land bridge right there that connects northern Greece to southern Greece, what is called an isthmus, all right, about three and a half miles wide. And so, as you can imagine, all of your uh, commerce uh, traveling by land had to pass through Corinth. Uh, if you were trying to get goods from the north to the south, you, you had to go through Corinth. There was no way around it. And actually, a good amount of sea travel also came through Corinth. It was about 200 nautical miles to go all the way around that cape. And especially for small boats, it was very dangerous. And so oftentimes people would come there to the isthmus, to that narrowest point right there at Corinth, and they would offload their goods. Sometimes even small boats would be rolled across the three and a half miles on uh, logs or skids or different things, or they would actually offload the goods and transport them by wagon to the other side of the isthmus and reload them and avoid that long sea journey. So from a variety of different aspects, it was just a very strategic location, and that's part of what caused this city to grow and prosper and be so influential. It was a culture that was focused on entertainment and pleasure. They had an outdoor theater that seated 20,000 people. They hosted the Isthmian Games, which was kind of alongside the, 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 Olympi the Olympic Games. Uh, and of course, Corinth was home to many of the vices of larger cities. Uh, Corinth actually became synonymous with sexual immorality. Uh, the temple to Aphrodite was there in Corinth. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And according to the historian Strabo, there were a thousand temple prostitutes in the city associated with the worship of Aphrodite. So this is the, the context in which Paul is writing. Uh, the church in Corinth was established by Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, we read the backstory there in Acts chapter 18. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth establishing this church. That's a bit unusual. Paul uh, didn't usually spend that much time, but he invested heavily in this church. And, and that makes it different than the, the letter to the Romans uh, church that we considered last week. Paul had never been to Rome. He had never met most of the 
the believers in the church in Rome. But he knew these people very well, so there's a, there's a personal element to his writing uh, here in Corinthians. Many Jews and Gentiles had turned to Jesus, and uh, this gospel success resulted in intense opposition from the Jewish community in Corinth. Um, we also, not only have Paul's work in the city, but also a man named Apollos, who was uh, a very gifted orator and teacher. And he came along at a later time and really helped to, again, ground the church in the gospel. And so Apollos is also referenced here in this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthian believers brought baggage as first generation followers of Jesus. Again, Paul writes pretty much the entire content of the letter is Paul confronting problems in the church. Reports of the church's struggles had reached Paul while he was at Ephesus and unable to go in person, he penned this letter to try to address some of these things. Needless to say, it was not a form letter, right? Paul had repeated correspondence with these believers. We have in our Bibles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we know that there was at least one other letter that Paul wrote. And then the church was also writing to Paul. So there's this ongoing interaction uh, as the church learned to live out their faith in the context of Corinth. Now again, a number of problems identified in the letter, but I believe that one of the common threads, as you look at all these problems, was pride and selfishness and self-promotion. Uh, Corinth was a society oriented around wealth and pleasure, self-indulgence, prestige, and these cultural values had made their way uh, into the church. Now, my daughter's volleyball team has embraced this little slogan. It's on the back of their warm-up jerseys. Uh, we before me. And that is uh, a critical worldview shift for a volleyball team, I suppose. But it's certainly a critical worldview shift for a follower of Jesus Christ, for a church. Paul was really urging these believers to stop looking out simply for themselves and to work for the common good. Uh, the letter repeatedly speaks of building up, uh, do things that, that serve to build up the church. And the passage that Brooke read for us, uh, where, uh, Paul reminded the believers there that, that they were indwelt by the Spirit. They were God's temple the place where God had chosen to presence himself. And anyone who destroys God's temple, anyone who destroys other people in the church, God will destroy. It's a very strong word. Paul's calling them to this corporate identity um, uh, here in this, in this letter. Now, I think at the outset, I, I think, I think this, the letter should stir a couple of emotions in us. Okay, so I want to just get you thinking down, down a couple of tracks here. Uh, in, in one sense, we should be encouraged uh, as we read this letter. God continues to carry out his work through Im imperfect, uh, sinful people. Uh, that ought to encourage us. Okay? Uh, notice how Paul addresses this church. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth. 
uh, even though they had so many problems, they were still the church. They were still God's people. Uh, Paul goes on to, to, to identify them as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those who have been purified. He actually uses the perfect tense of the word there. He speaks about them as the finished product, even though they weren't the finished product. <laughs> I think he had such a strong confidence that God would complete what he had started in this church. But what a great designation for this church that they are sanctified, that they are made clean. So we ought to be encouraged as we read this that, that God is able to use uh, people like this, churches like this, churches like ours. But I believe this letter should also convict us. Uh, Paul reminded them there again in chapter 1, verse 2, in the greeting that they were called, that they were called to be saints. Or they were called to be God's holy people. That word means set apart, distinct, different. Called to stand out from an ungodly, secular, pagan culture. Paul doesn't let them off the hook here. He reminds them of their identity. Yes, they're loved by God. They're the church of God. They're sanctified. But they've been called to be God's holy people. Paul doesn't let them off the hook. He reminds them of their calling, and he's going to prod them to live up to their calling. And I just couldn't help but think of the, the commonalities between Corinth and our culture. We, too, are living in an individualistic, pleasure-driven, pragmatic culture like Corinth, and these values has, have, have infiltrated the church more than we would like to admit. We need to hear the countercultural exhortations contained in this letter. We could divide the letter roughly into two parts. Uh, the first six chapters uh, address issues that are raised by Paul. These are things that he has observed, things that he is concerned about. And then beginning in chapter 7, we have another section of issues, this time issues raised by the church. They had questions that they had addressed to Paul, and he is now responding to those things. Again, every time Paul addresses one of these problems, he brings a gospel perspective. He helps them to see the issue through the lens of the gospel. Okay, So he keeps calling them back to their identity in Christ. I'm calling this... Really, sanctification in the trenches. You know, how does the gospel come to bear in these real-life situations? So first, the issues raised by Paul, the first of which was tribalism and division. Tribalism and division. Paul jumps right into it. There's a brief greeting, but here it is, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. 
So they were aligning themselves around certain personalities and certain preferences. And it's certainly a temptation for us, too, to sort of get caught up in uh, personalities, to be sort of uh, drawn to uh, certain positions. Um, and tribalism is a big problem. Uh, it's a big problem in the, the culture, particularly the culture we're living in right now. And I would suggest it's a, a growing problem in the church. Tribalism is when you are more loyal to your own group than you are to Christ. It might be political affiliation, right? You're more of a, a Republican or a Democrat than you are a Christian. It might be schooling convictions. You're more committed to homeschooling or Christian schooling or public schooling than you are to Christ. That, that loyalty means more to you than the bond of loyalty that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. It might be your stance on COVID protocols, right? You start to really step into it, right? These are my people. These are my people because they align with me in these certain areas. It might be alignment around ethnicity or age or common interests, Say, I'd like to be around these people because they like the things that I like. Uh, and that's a problem, right? When I, when I begin to draw my lines that way. And Paul, again, uh, applies a gospel lens. Uh, verse 13, notice the questions that Paul asks as he pushes back on them. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why such inordinate attention to these human leaders and, and these little subgroupings, right? Uh, Christ is the big deal. He's the one who has died for you. Uh, you've been baptized and pledged your allegiance to Christ, not to these little secondary agendas. He urges them not to be enamored by big personalities or eloquent speech. God has chosen to use the simple message of the cross to change lives. It's not about people. It's about the power of his word and his gospel. The message of the cross. Paul presents a series of analogies beginning in chapter 3 to sort of put things into perspective. Paul says, Apollos and I are uh, simply farmers planting and watering. The real heavy lifting is the seed. The seed is powerful. We're just planting the seed, and the seed does its work. Paul says that Apollos and I are like construction workers. We're just putting some bricks in, but, but the real foundation is Christ. We're, we're just building on that foundation, right? We're just adding bricks to what's already there. Paul says Apollos and I are servants of Christ, literally slaves of Christ. He's the big deal. Right? We are just doing his bidding. We're just out here as his messengers, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So, so Paul's wanting to frame uh, all of this in a certain light and call them away from tribalism and secondary loyalties and calling them to unity in Christ. He also confronts their tolerance of sin. Chapter 5, verse 1 it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. 
Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So Paul had heard these reports, a man having sexual relations with his stepmother. A level of immorality recognized even by a secular culture as out of line. We don't know why the church didn't take action in this particular situation. Perhaps we can maybe speculate that this man was a man of wealth and maybe a prominent member of the congregation. Easy for us to sometimes be driven by pragmatism instead of principle, right? Sometimes we'd rather do the easy thing than the right thing. And Paul's calling on them to, to do the right thing in this situation. He calls on them to, to put the man out of the church. And again, Paul brings a gospel lens here to this situation. Talks about the importance of church discipline. Matter of fact, church discipline has always been recognized as one of the key marks of a genuine church. Uh, the, the right preaching of the word, the right, uh, rightful observance of the sacraments or the ordinances, baptism in the Lord's table, and church discipline. Those are the three marks of a genuine church. And this, this, this element of mutual accountability is so critical in the life of a local church. And Paul says here, as he unpacks this, that uh, disciplining this guy, putting him out of the church, is good for him, and it's good for the church. It's good for him because this guy is one day going to stand before Christ and give an account. It's better that he feels a little bit uncomfortable right now, that he feels confronted right now, and hopefully can change course before he has to stand before Christ. And it's certainly best for the church because the purity of the church is so important and because sin is so contagious. Paul uses the illustration of yeast. He says a little bit of yeast uh, very quickly gets into the whole lump of dough. It gets into the whole church. So Paul calls on them to take action and to not tolerate open, willful, unrepentant sin. Paul makes a very helpful distinction here in this section in chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul understood the tendency to get angry about the sins of the culture and conveniently overlook the sins of the church. <laughs> Paul says we have a unique responsibility not to change the culture, but to maintain purity in the church. By the way, I'll put in my plug for membership here. Uh, this idea of church discipline is so important, this mutual accountability uh, that takes place in a church. If you never, leave, never formally join with a church in membership, you sidestep that accountability. You never really place yourself under that accountability. Um, so Paul's, Paul's just hitting at this area of tolerance of sin and urging the church to maintain accountability and to confront and put out persistent sin.
Paul also confronts greedy litigation. Chapter 6, verse 1, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Their disunity had reached a point where they were bringing cases against other believers in the secular courts. We live in a very litigious society, don't we? And our American culture, I feel like, only fuels that. We are very conscious of our rights. We fight for our rights. We do not relinquish our rights. And it seems to be this kind of a spirit that had driven the conflict all the way to the secular courts. No one was going to give an inch. Paul, once again, applies a gospel lens. And he pushes back for several reasons. First, God's people have a wisdom that the world does not have. Verses 1 through 5. Why would we go seek the advice of unbelievers who don't share our worldview? Uh, This is crazy. Uh, So Paul calls them to, uh, to, to resolve these matters internally. He also points out that it brings shame. These kinds of things bring shame on the church and cause the gospel to be ridiculed in the community. Chapter 6, verse 6. They cared more about being right than about the reputation of the gospel. Right? Let's get this in perspective here. Paul pointed out that it revealed an unwillingness to sacrifice for the good of a brother or sister. Paul said, why not rather be wronged? I mean, the cost is too high here. You, you, you end up with a wedge between you and another brother or sister. It's not worth it. Just chalk up the, the, the money as a loss and retain the relationship with your brother and sister. So Paul, again, just continues to help them understand why, in light of the gospel, this is such, uh, such a poor response. Also in this section... He confronts the visiting of prostitutes. Amazing that Paul had to address this in the church, right? We think, what in the world? This would have been, of course, common practice for men in Corinth. And again, also interconnected with the worship in the temple Aphrodite. And a lot of the worship practices were laced in sexual immorality. But it seems that even some in the church were defending this behavior. Part of it was a distorted view of grace, right? I've been saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace. Part of it seemed to flow out of a poor view of the body. Uh, The prevailing philosophy of the day was that the body was bad and the soul was good. And there was sort of this, this attempt to try to put a dividing line so that the things you do in the body don't really impact the soul, Uh, some distortions in thinking there. And again, Paul brings a gospel lens to this. He reminds us, reminds these believers that our bodies matter. Uh, They're not simply something to be thrown away. Matter of fact, they're going to be raised from the grave. Our bodies, what we do in our bodies matter. And Paul talks here about how we have been joined with Christ, body and soul. And we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. But we ought not link God with immorality. These things don't go together. And so again, he's appealing to them 
to distance themselves from these kinds of activities. Again, we have to recognize that in our own culture, pornography, cohabitation, sex outside of marriage are increasingly tolerated even by those within the church. These things ought not to be. Beginning in chapter 7, Paul then addresses issues that were raised by the church. So you see the terminology here. Now for matters you wrote about, chapter 7, verse 1. So the church had written to Paul, and now Paul is wanting to address some of those case studies. Each new section generally begins with the phrase, now concerning this matter that you had brought up. So several things that are addressed here. One is abdicating divine assignments. This is a, kind of a mouthful here, and um, I, I'm going to have to kind of help draw out what Paul's really getting at here in this chapter. But essentially, he's addressing a lot of selfishness, particularly in the context of the marriage relationship. So some were withholding sex from their spouse, Others were abandoning their marriage covenants, walking away, wanting to be married to someone else. Some were married to an unbelieving spouse, and they wanted to walk away from the relationship. And Paul is having to remind them uh, to fulfill their covenant obligations, to think of the other spouse and not just themselves. We, too, are living in a time when happiness of the individual is paramount. Like, it trumps everything. And Paul says, it's not just about you, right? Paul reminds the husband and the wife that they have surrendered their autonomy when they got married. They no longer are able to just do what's best for themselves, but they must do what's best for their spouse. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. A husband or wife should not simply leave their spouse for another spouse, a believer finds himself or herself in a difficult marriage to an unbelieving spouse, he should do everything possible to remain and live at peace. So it certainly doesn't mean that a woman should uh, endure abuse or remain in an abusive relationship, but Paul's point is that marriage is not about your personal happiness. There's something more going on. We ought to be thinking of the other person and not just ourselves. And ultimately, marriage is, is symbolizing the unconditional love of the gospel. So Paul urges them to, to remain, to, to stick with it, even when it's hard in those personal relationships. I think he summarizes, really, in chapter 7, verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Isn't that interesting? Paul says your particular place where God has you in a marriage relationship or singleness is an assignment. God's given you an assignment. He's placed you there for a reason. Remain in that place. Be faithful in the situation where the Lord has assigned you. So again, he's calling them to, to, to get outside of themselves <laughs> and to think of others. 
Uh, he also uh, addresses the selfish use of Christian freedoms. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrifice to idols. This was a big topic here in the first century church. In the ancient world, meat would often be dedicated to idols before it was sold in the marketplace. So should a Christian eat meat that had been dedicated to an idol? It's a controversial subject. There was not clear consensus in the church. A lot of people have put uh, certain aspects of COVID protocols in this kind of a thing. Of How do we think about those things where everybody in the church doesn't agree? These aren't gospel issues, but, but how, do we, how do we process through those things in unity? So it's a similar situation, I think, that Paul's putting out there to work through with the church. In this particular case, as it related to meat offered to idols, Paul's quick to point out that idols are not real. There's nothing spiritually significant about that meat. And God created all food for us to enjoy. So eat it or don't eat it, it doesn't matter. But, and here's Paul's caveat, make sure that in exercising your freedoms, you don't cause another believer to stumble in their faith. If another believer sees you eating meat and sees you in proximity to an idol temple, they might reach the wrong conclusion, right? If another believer is coming out of a background of idol worship, they might be troubled to see you eating that meat. And in that situation, don't eat the meat for their sake. Don't just think of yourself. And Paul goes on to share in regards to personal testimony, too. At the end of chapter 9, he says, I have become all things to all people. Paul goes through to list all the things that he's been willing to give up for the sake of others. So Paul, again, wanting to caution them, helping them to think properly about the use of their Christian freedoms. We should enjoy the freedoms God has given us, but always with a mind to how those freedoms are impacting others around us. Self-promoting worship practices. This is kind of a larger section here. Several things that Paul deals with. Uh, but all of them have to do with the church gathered in worship. And some specific uh, things that, that Paul wants to challenge them on. Chafing under authority. Chapter 11 outlines some of the structures that God had established for the church. Uh, some of those had to do with gender the role of men, the role of women in the context of the church. And there was seemingly some pushback in that regard. And Paul's urging them to, uh, to function under God's authority. Uh, indulgences at the Lord's table. When they would gather for the Lord's Supper, the rich would take advantage of the poor. The rich would get there earlier. They'd get the best seats. They'd eat all the good food. And uh, by the time the poor people arrived, there was nothing left. And so again, he's urging them to not just think of themselves when they gather for worship, but show deference and love and humility and concern for others. Uh, the devaluing of other believers. Uh, this whole section on spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Uh, every believer had, has been gifted by the Spirit, uh, but some were overvaluing their gifts and undervaluing the gifts of others. And this had become a, a real problem. People were vying to have certain uh, 
expressions of their gifts in the context of public worship and uh, really looking down their noses at others. So Paul goes through this whole elaborate metaphor, right, of the body. And he says, it's true that your gift is really valuable. The church needs your gift. But it's also true that you need the church, right? The, the body needs that organ, but the organ needs the body. <laughs> Most organs don't function very well outside of the body. So Paul really stresses this whole aspect of interdependence and each part of the body performing a vital function for the health of the body. Recognize the value of your brothers and sisters, although they might be wired differently than you. You might be passionate about this, and this is your gift, but they're serving a vital function in a different way in the context of the church. Well, that's again Paul's gospel lens that he applies to help them think about the use of their gifts and he encourages them to use their gifts for the building up of the church the final thing here that paul addresses is living for the moment uh chapter 15 is sort of this uh, crescendo uh section where paul deals with the resurrection and part of what's going on is that many in the church denied that there was a coming resurrection of the dead. Again, I mentioned the, the, philosophy, the prevailing philosophy of uh, secular culture at that time was that the body was bad and the spirit was good. And so the thought was, when you died, the spirit was finally free of the body. Why would you ever want to, to get the body back? And so the, this whole doctrine of the resurrection was... was uh, a bit unpopular. But one of, the, one of the problems when you don't have a good, healthy view of uh, the resurrection and the life to come is that you begin to only live for the moment. And I think this was part of the problem here in the church in Corinth. So Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus and draws out the implications of Jesus' resurrection, a coming resurrection of the dead. And he really wants these believers to live with an understanding that they will one day give an account to God. Matter of fact, not just here in chapter 15, but if you go back and read 1 Corinthians with this in mind, you'll see how many times Paul reminds them of the day of the Lord or the day of Christ's return. He wants them to be motivated by the fact that they're going to give an account. And he really unpacks that here in chapter 15 so that they are living in light of eternity, not just living for the moment. Paul includes some concluding remarks in chapter 16. He's taking up a financial collection for the church in Jerusalem. And so he's not only encouraging these believers to love each other within the local church, but he wants them to love other believers in other churches, right? Steve's prayer for the Afghani believers in the Afghani church is so appropriate this morning. We're, so Paul's training them, again, to love one another. And he concludes with a series of just pointed exhortations continuing to drive home 
his point. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Submit to church leaders. And one of his last commands, greet one another with a holy kiss. Or in our vernacular, embrace one another. Draw together. Uh, Paul again calling them to not just live for themselves. To not be a, a, an ivory tower but to give themselves in love toward one another. We can be thankful that God has saved us by his grace and continues to use imperfect people. Imperfect churches like the church in Corinth and like this local church. But we must also remember our calling to be God's holy and distinct people. We must root out the selfish values and attitudes that tend to infiltrate the church And allow our minds to be shaped continually by the gospel.